Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us here on Cloudy with a Chance of Podcast. We're doing a different type of episode for you again where we can uh, do more of a vodcast. So not only can you listen to us if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Stitcher, but if you have our OTT streaming app, you're going to be able to watch us as well and on our website, whio.com. McCall, this is a very interesting time. I would say probably not only a very challenging time for people, but for us in um, you know, meteorology, but also just in journalism, it is a struggle. And it's definitely one where we are trying to find the positives, but we're also trying to make sure that we're educating people and that we're keeping everybody on the same page. Yeah. And I believe our uh, podcast is a great platform for us to really dive into something that is not necessarily meteorological, but is a science and is impacting the entire globe. Mm -hmm. And you can see if you're watching us in this uh, vodcast version that Kirstie and I are not in the same room. Right. We're not even in the same building. <laughs> yeah, not even in the same building. I'm at home as well as Kirstie. And we're really just trying to keep our social distancing at this point. This is what all the experts and doctors have told us is the way to stay healthy. And I, there's been so many questions, and I have a lot myself. I know Percy does as well, and that's why we have these special guests on today with this uh, special edition of Cloudy with a Chance podcast, Kirsty. Exactly. And we are talking about the coronavirus or COVID-19. If you're wondering or live under a rock at this point, you know exactly what we're talking about. And McCall and I study the atmosphere, which makes us meteorologists, but we wanted to get two other experts on in this field. So we have an epidemiologist as well as a virologist. They're going to explain what exactly that means and what exactly they study. But I do want to give them the proper introductions because not only are these two uh, very intelligent women, they're professors, they're doctors, doctors. And uh, I mean, I think growing up, McCall, we both have two daughters. This is also mm -hmm. a time that it's really highlighting all of these women's in the field of science and STEM. And hopefully, um, I know this is a very scary time, but as you're growing up, if you're a little girl, you are seeing women in fields um, with a lot of power that are very intelligent. And I think one positive to this is that it's probably shedding light for some little girls that may want to mm -hmm. grow up and be scientists and doctors. A hundred percent. It's it's making me emotional with you just talking about that. You know, we've especially in Ohio seen a lot of Dr. Amy Atkins mm -hmm. and um, our, our uh, guests on today. So smart, so intelligent, and just shows that um, if you are a little girl and you're listening or you're watching, that uh, you can dream big and you can dream in the sciences. Exactly. So our two guests are both from Wright State. They're both professors there. Uh, Dr. Don Woolley is a professor in the Department of Neuroscience, Cell Biology, and Physiology. Uh, she holds a professional certification in biosafety from ABSA International. Dr. Woolley has a PhD in virology. So as I mentioned, she's a virologist uh, from Harvard University, no doubt there. And she currently serves on the board of scientific counselors for the Center of Preparedness and Response of the CDC. So that's gonna be really interesting. We'll ask her more about that. She's the director of the Master's of Science program in microbiology and immunology in the College of Science and Mathematics uh, and she teaches virology, uh, biological safety, as well as gene therapy. So welcome, Dr. Dawn Woolley. Hello. Hello. Thank she you. Is our first guest, our second guest as well, uh, just as impressive credentials. 
Uh, but Dr. Nyla Khalil is an associate professor in the Department of Population and Public Health Sciences, also at Wright State University. Um, she is the director of Division of International and Environmental Health, the Boonshoff School of Medicine at Wright State. Uh, Dr. Khalil is an instructor for Masters of Public Health program. And this is interesting, she teaches not only environmental health, but climate change and health, as well as epidemiology. So welcome. Both imp so impressive just to even be in the same Zoom <laughs> podcast room as you two ladies. I know. Let's take a little bit of their awesomeness vibes, Christy. <laughs> no, I'm like, man, we're in science, but not that deep. <laughs> uh, but no. welcome. Thank you both. I know that you are busy and you're both college professors. So to start off, let's just have you each explain what is an epidemiologist and what is a virologist, whoever wants to go first. Okay, this is Dawn. So a virologist studies viruses. That's what we do. We study all kinds of viruses, what their structure is, uh, how they replicate, and also a little bit about their pathogenesis as well. Some specialize in the disease parts of the virus or also how the viruses are transmitted, which feeds into the field of epidemiology. And then epidemiology. So an epidemiologist studies uh, disease and its transmission in population. So epi is uh, the knowledge and demos is um, a Latin word for people. So we as epidemiologists try to understand how the disease is happening and transmitting in population. And as public health professionals, we try to see how we can prevent it from implicating uh, further uh, population segments. Wow. Go ahead. Well, uh, before we get into, you know, what's happening right now, what did, um, was there a certain point in time that made you decide that that was the avenue of science that you wanted to go into? First, we'll start with you, Don. Okay, thank you. So I was always interested in science in high school, and I went to the Pennsylvania State University for my undergraduate. I got involved in research in my junior year, and I was working in a lab that studied DNA tumor viruses. I was very interested in cancer. And then when I found out that viruses can cause cancer, I wanted to pursue that. And I did do an undergraduate project there. For my graduate studies, I actually went to Harvard to study cancer. Okay. And when I got there, the AIDS virus had just been discovered, which is also a pandemic virus. And so I ended up doing my PhD, my dissertation on the HIV virus at that time. And I did some postdoctoral work at the University of Wisconsin. And then from there, I did uh, get a professorship at Wright State. And I've continued to study HIV. That's been my main virus. Mm -hmm. Also now uh, are studying how to engineer the virus, HIV, as well as other viruses for gene therapy to deliver therapeutic genes. So we're taking something that's bad and making it good to help people. Wow. That is really neat. <laughs> Thank you. And Nyla, what about you? Yeah, um, 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 I started off as a um, physician uh, in Pakistan, um, and then I had a chance when I raised my three kids and they were all in school, mm -hmm. I went back and uh, became a student again. Um, I got my uh, Master of Public Health degree after practicing for 18 years in the Ministry of Health um, Pakistan. And um, uh, during the Master of Public Health, I became interested in how um, as compared to my previous work as a physician, where I was only 
uh, treating one patient at a time, uh, public health uh, allows me to treat the whole population and take care of uh, the health status of numerous people at a time. And so um, I wanted to learn um, exactly which environmental characteristics were leading to disease coming from a developing country. And so I came to the United States for my doctoral degree um, in environmental epidemiology from the University of Pittsburgh. And after that, I had my postdoc in uh, Wright State University and I was um, hired as an assistant professor there. And then um, I have been promoted to associate professor, which is my current task uh, right now. So uh, a few years back when there was a heightened interest in climatic factors, which are now becoming so prominent um, mm -hmm. in, um, in, an, um, in the environment um, around us, um, I started putting together a course on climate change and health just to try to teach um, the newer generation about um, the health impacts that we are bound to see as we proceed um, uh, forward. Wow, that is obviously as meteorologists, climatology is something we talk about and our, our warming climate. Um, so that is really, really quite interesting that you are teaching the future and you're kind of helping to shed light that one of the impacts you can have when we continue to warm is how that can impact viruses. Now, um, it's interesting as well that we have both of you on. One, because Nyla, you're kind of studying, like you said, the population. And then um, Dawn, you are the vir viruses specifically. And with COVID-19 or the coronavirus, we have a pandemic. So we have a virus that's now impacting so, so many people. Um, as experts, I don't know who wants to take this, but if someone is not really sure what exactly is uh, the coronavirus um, or COVID-19 specifically, maybe, can you maybe explain a little bit to people who are not familiar with these types of viruses? Okay, I can start off with that. So um, in terms of what is a coronavirus, okay, that is a family of viruses and they got their name corona for crown because under the electron microscope, they look like a crown. They have these big spikes on the outside. You might've even heard about those in the news that they mm -hmm. talk about. Mm -hmm. So it's a whole family of viruses and within this family, there are many coronaviruses. Some infect animals and some infect humans. And so there's about seven different viruses that infect humans. Four of them just cause common colds. And for many years, you know, they were a trivial disease. SARS came along, excuse me, I'll mute my phone here. That's okay. <laughs> That's the other lamp. Sorry. Uh, so SARS, the original SARS came along in 2002. And that caused an epidemic, but it didn't quite get as far spread as the current virus. MERS, you might recall, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome virus came along in 2012. Mm -hmm. And that is of a, a concern also, uh, but didn't get as widespread as the current one. And so now in 2019, we have the, 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 the new SARS virus. And actually, it's been named SARS coronavirus 2. That's its okay. official. Mm -hmm. Initially, it was 2019 novel coronavirus. And actually, the COVID-19, that's really referring to the disease, okay. coronavirus disease 19 for 2019. So a lot of people will just say COVID when they're, when they're talking about the virus, but COVID-19 is the disease and you know, SARS coronavirus 2 is actually the virus. Okay. And these are 
like I said, they're, they look like a crown and they have a membrane around them, just like the cells in our body have a membrane. And what's good about that is it's easy to disrupt that membrane. So that's why they're emphasizing like hand washing and regular soap. Regular soap will disrupt the membrane around that virus. And that's very simple to do, it's very accessible. And so in, th in that regard, it can be easy to, to decontaminate this virus. It's, it's got, it can survive in the environment, but things like soap, household products like bleach, and things that we have readily available can disrupt the structure of the virus. That's good. <laughs> that makes sense why like it's... That that's comforting <laughs> to know. Yeah, that's comforting to know. And it makes sense why the CDC and, and it's just continuously mm. being repeated wash your hands, don't touch your face, you know, disinfect things that are touched frequently. So that is, uh, I mean, that puts me a little bit of relief, at least knowing we can disrupt it. Um, can. In, in terms of Nyla, for you, what makes this a pandemic? Because that's also maybe a new word that people have not um, frequently been exposed to or heard. So what would make this uh, be considered or classified into a pandemic? Um, a pandemic is uh, an outbreak which um, has involved many countries um, uh, due to the infection. So when uh, outbreak infects two or more people, it is labeled as an outbreak. Uh, an epidemic is uh, considered uh, that state, of, which is a sort of an epidemiological term for an outbreak. Um, there are also severity of cases, for example, um, when um, epidemic is involving just one case of very acute diseases, um, it can uh, still be labeled as um, an epidemic, but when it involves multiple people, more than two at a time, uh, then it can be labeled as an epidemic uh, in a certain area. Uh, it could have many different pockets which may pop up um, here and there, but when it has involved multiple countries at a time and um, there is chance that it is going to spread globally, then it is labeled as a pandemic, which in, in pan means all. And so all countries that are involved. Uh, World Health Organization categorized this uh, evolving epidemic um, quite uh, late in um, uh, February where um, they uh, figured that many countries are now going to be impacted. Mm -hmm. And just to raise the level of uh, seriousness or the uh, alertness uh, to um, break the cycle from propagating further, uh, they uh, labeled it as a pandemic. Gotcha. Well, Nyla, I have a question because I know like in the field of meteorology for Kirsty and I, you know, when we start to see severe weather season and then we have to talk about, oh, there's a possibility of a tornado. Oh, there's going to be a possible multiples. Then we're getting, you know, this past severe weather season, we wound up having a tornado emergency. And, and the emotions that we go through when we see weather environments enhancing, what were your feelings when we're going from an epidemic to a pandemic? Like, how are you feeling in the job, in the field that you're in, realizing, because you probably means. have way more information than the average person and what that means? Yeah, um, um, I have been following um, this um, late from uh, late in December when it was localized in uh, Wuhan, China, in the mm -hmm. Hubei province. Um, there were news coming in um, um, that there had been uh, new cases of pneumonia uh, due to um, a probable cause, possibly related to um, 
wet market and earlier it was thought that it was a zoonotic transmission because of animal uh, which was transmitted to humans but uh, within a few days it was realized that there was person to person transmission uh, being observed um, in um, in Wuhan and uh, there were certain reports that um, uh, nosocomial or the hospital bound infections were also um, being uh, noted so from then onwards, I think it was a steady stream of the news um, coming in that this is a human-to-human -human transmission. It was, it was just not localized um, as a zoonotic disease, which was jumping from one animal to an intermediate animal, and then on primarily starting from bats, and then thought to be uh, intermediate um, uh, transfer to uh, another mammal, um, uh, a, a pangolin and then on to humans but then it was realized when there were a few more cases uh, within um, the earlier weeks of January there was a heightened suspicion that it has become a human to human transmission of this virus and um, because of the heightened travel activity related right. to the lunar um, uh, new year there was um, a risk that this is going to be transferred not from this pocket of infection that was localized to Wuhan and the Hubei province, it could be um, transmitted to all the adjoining countries and through air travel much farther than the, the, the proximal geographic areas. And uh, as we saw later on, it had spread within weeks to much farther from the um, Asian continent to other continents. Yeah. Don, I have a question for you, because we obviously have viruses that are living amongst us all the time. Um, what causes something like this to happen? Obviously, it came from an animal to, to a human, but wh why does that happen now and why did it not happen in the past? Okay, so that's a good question. Um, the reservoir for these coronaviruses appears to be a bat type of a species, and they think there's an intermediary reservoir like some type of animal for the original SARS, they thought it was a civet, and they're implicating pangolins for an intermediate host for the, the current outbreak. Mm -hmm. But these are zoonotic infections. They're diseases of animals that can spread to humans. When they make that species jump, it can cause a very severe disease because there is no immunity. Humans have never seen this virus before. And that happened in previous pandemics. For example, the, the virus I study, HIV, mm -hmm. it entered the, the human population from chimpanzees. Mm -hmm. And also the 1918 influenza was the same. A hundred years ago, the worst influenza pandemic ever, it was a completely new influenza species that entered humans. And now we're seeing the same thing here. You know, and as humans just get closer and closer to some of these animal reservoirs, that species jump occurs. And so the reason is, again, we have no immunity. Our bodies have never seen this virus before. And that's why, you know, it's spreading. It's also a very contagious virus that's easily transmitted. Okay. For people, um, when we have been talking and now at this point with the government and everything saying like, we need to be doing social distancing in Ohio, Governor DeWine, um, you know, made that proclamation to stay at home. Why is something like that so important? Why do people need to not ignore the fact that we need to be isolating ourselves, um, especially with a virus, like you said, that is so contagious? Why is that so important and, and what can people do? 
Okay, so uh, it is important to stay at home because again, no one has any immunity whatsoever. Everybody is vulnerable to getting the infection. There are different outcomes for different ages. Mm -hmm. And droplet transmission seems to be a very important means of transmission. There's debate about aerosol and how long it may hang in the air if someone coughs or sneezes. But I think the six foot is for if someone is, is even talking to you, those droplets typically stay within the six feet. And so that's, that's the social distancing that's very important. And just the contact, people don't realize how many times during the day they touch their eyes, nose, or mouth. And this virus can also be spread if you have a contaminated surface and you touch that and then you touch your eyes, nose, or mouth, you're actually inoculating yourself. And so that's why people staying home and not interacting with each other and even being cautious about bringing things into the home, like mm -hmm. grocery shopping is, is a big ordeal right now. And so I think people have to start thinking about that and even bringing packages and mail because now there's a lot of online ordering going on. So you can do things like take, empty the contents, leave the boxes outside, mm -hmm. non-perishable item you could leave it set maybe in, a, in your garage for a few days before bringing it in. It's, it's not always practical to disinfect everything because some things come in packages and are, that are not easy to disinfect. But again, going back to the contagiousness, you know, they estimate that this virus for every infected person can infect two to three other people. And that's into the category of, again, highly contagious. So that's why we all just need to stay home and stay safe because we need to cut down the transmission from person to person right now so that we don't have a huge spike in cases if we have a huge spike all at one time, the other concern is that the hospitals cannot handle the cases mm -hmm. and more people will die. Whereas if we do that, we're hearing flattening the curve a lot. So that means we don't want that huge spike all at one time. If we flatten it, we'll still have some cases, but we may not have such a burden on the healthcare system right now. Yeah. I mean, definitely that is good for people to just remember that it's not you know we really have to be i guess not selfish in this sense because there mm -hmm. are humans that are helping to keep you healthy and so we need to help them as much as possible nyla exactly. for you in your area um i guess of expertise um what does this mean i guess can something like this happen again i guess is kind of what we're we've seen it like you said we had um SARS and MERS, and then we have this. Now that people are becoming closer and closer and travel is becoming just so easy, is there a way in the future, our experts or scientists or the government, I mean, trying to figure out how we could combat another impact like this, or you know what I mean? What do you, I guess, what do you see happening or what could happen for us to try to limit how quickly something like this could spread again? Right. Uh, yes. Uh, so as you mentioned, uh, because of the globalization of um, uh, the trade and commerce and rapid travel of uh, individuals from one country uh, to another country and from one continent to another continent, there is rapid transmission of anything which is um, uh, 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 for entities like a disease, which could be virus or uh, bacterial. Um, but also because of the um, increasing population and urbanization, the population density is now encroaching on wilder areas, which used to be the habitat for survival of different animal species. Mm -hmm. So we are coming in contact with more and more um, of these uh, species, which were 
a little bit farther from us um, um, a few decades ago. But now we are encroaching on their habitats and there's a higher chance that these um, um, uh, microbes or viruses which were bound to these uh, species, they are now going to be coming uh, more frequently in contact with human population. And um, as we know that uh, there is a high chance of any microbe um, to mutate um, um, as it reproduces. Um, so with um, the mutation, there is a chance that it could jump the species barrier from animal um, species to human uh, species. And so with increasing population and a little bit of the climatic variables that are changing um, uh, due to uh, the uh, climate change, we might see uh, a more frequent um, um, uh, uh, incidences of um, uh, these zoonotic infections um, becoming more common and they might mutate and they may, uh, may uh, show up as human person-to-person -person, um, transmission down the line. Uh, we have seen these happening in the last two decades for SARS and MERS. SARS was also uh, due to a civet, a cat-like species um, in China, where it was um, uh, domesticated. It was a wild animal, but was domesticated and was consumed by humans. And so there was a species jump from civet cat to humans. And in MERS also, where there was a closer contact with um, uh, one species of camel that is raised uh, for consumption um, or for milk in Arabian Peninsula. And there was a species jump from um, um, uh, camels to human, and then it became human to human transmission. So as we become more dependent on these domesticated animals, or there is more contact with the wilder areas because of human um, uh, urbanization or encroachment on the wilder habi habitat, we are um, seeing more frequent evolution of these viruses, which can be a source of disease to the human population. Okay. Oh, I don't know about you, Kirsty, but that seems like a very scary thought. <laughs> it definitely does. You know, scientifically, because, you know, we talk a lot about global warming and, and yeah. you know, protecting our planet, but when you really think about it, you know, as we start to take over more and more of Space. places in the world that were not ours, you know, they, they belong to the animals, you know, global warming might take a back seat in that sense because we could have a, a pandemic just quickly wiping out, you know, so many people. And so that's a very scary thought and you have to kind of put that in your mind as we move forward as a, as a globe, as, a, as the entire world. Um, Dawn, I have a question for you. Uh, we talk about vaccines, um, and maybe people don't understand how a vaccine can protect against a virus. Would you mind explaining that? And is that um, something that I guess could be continuously worked on? We talk about the flu vaccination, getting that every year. Um, I guess, how can a vaccine protect and or is, is that going to be something that continues to get worked on since a virus is not a bacteria? You can't just give it an antibiotic and be cured. Exactly. Um, so a, a vaccine is the best way to protect ourselves against these agents. And for this virus, you know, we are concerned that it's going to be with us for a while. It could come back mm -hmm. later on, like the flu comes back in a seasonal pattern. And so a vaccines, there's many different types of vaccines. You can take the virus and just kill it. And so it can't cause an infection and then introduce that into the body. And then people's immune systems will raise antibodies against that virus. And we've heard about that. That's been discussed a lot in the news media. Mm -hmm. There are other kinds of vaccines like 
you could take the virus and actually have a live version of it, but it's attenuated or it's weakened, so it won't cause the disease, but it will still help to raise those antibodies. Uh, safer forms of vaccines would be you could take a part of the virus, just one protein, maybe the, a protein on the outside, like one of those big like spikes on the outside that I, mm -hmm. I mentioned earlier, and just raise antibodies to that, just a component of the virus. And now there's even some newer vaccines where they're just taking the genetic information from the virus or a part of the genetic information, introducing that into the person's body, and that will express part of the virus again so that antibodies will be raised against that virus. And then what we hope is that our immune system will remember this. And that's the big question that we don't know for this particular virus. Sometimes we get va vaccinated as children and we have lifelong immunity, and that's right. wonderful. But other times our immune system doesn't raise a good memory response. We don't remember the virus. Or in, in this case, the virus could mutate, like the flu virus changes a little bit each year and we have to get a vaccine every year. That could be the case with the coronavirus. It's, it's an RNA virus. Its genetic material is different than what's in our cells, which is DNA. And those types of viruses, as we were just discussing, can mutate. So we may have to come up with a vaccine platform where we, like the flu virus, we can make a new one each year depending on which strain of the coronavirus is circulating. So we have a lot of unanswered questions, but what we hope to do is to, with a vaccine, to raise a, a defense system against the virus through antibodies and, and white blood cells that can remember the virus so that if it's reintroduced into our body or introduced into our body newly, we can defend against it. Okay. See, that's, that gives us a little hope that that's going to continue to get work done. Um, another question, because you just kind of mentioned the flu comes in seasons or it goes with the seasons. This is a lot of questions around whether or not um, this virus it would respond to us getting warmer as we head into spring and summer. Is there any truth to that? Is that just something we have to um, watch out for? Because we do know that some viruses do come in waves when it comes to heating up and getting colder and that kind of thing. So do you guys have any, um, I guess, answers or any research there that is. you've read? Yeah. Uh, I have some information on that. So we have studied other coronaviruses. I mentioned this is a whole family of viruses. Right. And the coronaviruses that cause colds have a seasonal pattern. We tend to see them in winter and spring. And they've looked at the survivability of the coronaviruses, and it survives better in lower temperatures and lower humidity, which means that as we go into summer and the temperatures go up and humidity goes up, we, we hope for this new virus to see a decrease like we have with the other coronaviruses. So that would be the best case scenario. Now, with this being a new virus and no one having any immunity, even though it decreases, it may not completely go away in the summer, again, because no one has immunity. Right. So the concern is that it might still linger a little bit through the summer, but at least the number of cases, hopefully, our hope is they'll go down. But then the concern is that it might come back in the fall when mm -hmm. the temperatures change again, they get lower and we have you know, less humidity. But if it can decrease in the summer, it buys us the time to prepare for the fall. And that's, that's our best hope is that it will decrease over the summer. 
Let's get a hot and muggy summer. We can do that. We've had that many (laughs) times here in the Miami Valley. (laughs) Yeah, the one time you're actually wishing it, right? Right, the one time, like, I'll take hot, humid. We'll deal with severe weather. We can handle it. We're tough in the Miami Valley. (laughs) Uh, Dawn, a little bit of a follow-up question because, you know, some people have been tested positive for it. Other people, you know, think that they may have had the symptoms um, but don't know. It, do you know if there's anything being developed to test if somebody does have the antibodies and did in fact have the coronavirus as we move forward? Yes, the, the testing that we're hearing about right now, like these drive-through test sites, they're trying to determine whether someone actively has the virus. And what they're doing is they're testing for the genetic material present in that person, in the specimen. There is a different form of testing that you're referring for. It's looking, referring to looking for the antibodies in the person to see, as I mentioned with the vaccines, when you get exposed to the virus, your body develops antibodies. Now that doesn't happen immediately. The antibodies come like two to three weeks after the infection. So you can't really uh, detect necessarily the active infections by looking at the antibodies. But we do want to know as we study this virus, how many people have antibodies. There'll be studies that are conducted, serological studies, because there are many people who either had a very mild or asymptomatic case, maybe never got the the test to see if they were actively infected. But we want to know later on the the actual prevalence of this virus. And that is the way to do that. And, And that will be a priority later. But right now we're trying to identify the active cases. But the big question that we have too is the case fatality. So we can take the confirmed cases now and count the deaths and say there's this percentage of case fatality, which right now is ranging from one to 10%, with the 10% being in places like Italy. But what we don't know, there's many people that are not being tested, may have had a mild infection. And so later on, when we do these antibody studies, we can figure out how many people actually had it and get a much better number on the case fatality rate. Okay. Well, I will raise my hand for that because I, I am convinced that I had it um, <laughs> in early February. I had all of the symptoms down the line. So I'm going to turn my question now to Nalia and that we started hearing a lot about the infections in China back in December. Is it possible that we could have had coronavirus here in January or February? It just went not documented because the cases weren't as uh, frequent. Right. Yes, um, I I think what we saw in Seattle, Washington area, when the first contact case was confirmed, um, there was a genetic uh, study reported within that week or a few days after that case was reported that community transmission has also occurred and there was um, uh, gene sequences, uh, sequencing that was reported uh, by a scientist there that it had been circulating in the community even before this case was detected uh, um, or recorded. Um, So we may have had some cases earlier on than uh, what was reported in the media and it was slowly simmering in the community uh, weeks prior to the detection. And we know now that um, uh, it can, uh, the incubation period ranges from um, as few as five days up until uh, 40 days. Um, wow. So it could have been a one month uh, long duration that it had uh, infected um, the first patient there. And then uh, because 80% of the cases are not symptomatic, they are just 
uh, infected and they their body tries to um, combat the infection by itself and they may have a little bit of sore throat or may not have any symptoms at all. And some of the, these asymptomatic 80% of these cases may be able to shed these virus even though they are not sick themselves, but they still may be able to shed this virus and contaminate others, their family members or colleagues and the people around them. So only 15 or 14 percent of the cases become a little bit ill um, and uh, four to five percent of the cases needs hospitalization and only 2.5 percent need to be put on on the ventilator. So there's a sort of a gradient of response, but most of us, 80 percent of um, the population um, is able to combat the disease uh, by itself. That's crazy to think about, but it does make sense. And, and like you both had said, this is continuing to evolve. We're learning and then we will be able to look back and really see even more as more time passes. I'm going to switch gears just a little bit as we wrap up. You both are professors and clearly at this point, everyone is doing distance learning. So what is that like being professors that are basically teaching all of your students now remotely, but also you have a pandemic occurring. I mean, this is history happening. Are your students interested and have you worked this into the curriculum? Well, I have a good answer for that because I'm teaching virology right now. Right? I was like, this is exactly right. (laughs) It is the study of viruses. So my students are very interested. Yeah. And uh, we just did our lecture on coronaviruses, which of course I updated tremendously with all of the information. And so, yes, I think it's, uh, it was just, uh, I never thought I would be teaching virology, let alone a coronavirus lecture during a worldwide pandemic. I have about 60 students in my class. And so as a professor, you know, anyone teaching any class had to work very hard to convert a a regular in-person class to an online class. And our primary concern is our students. I teach upper level. Some of the students are set to graduate. Some of the other professors are teaching students in in disciplines where there's accreditation. And so we want to help our students in the most way possible. I'm having um, online chat sessions with them and uh, just trying to all get them all through. Uh, And also I think that they're all, some of them are displaced. Some of them had to move out of of the dorms. Mm -hmm. And uh, then they're scrambling for a place to live and they're very disrupted. But also, if you think about the whole university, professors not only teach, we have committees, there's a lot of, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a senator for the College of Science and Math, and all of the normal business activities are being moved also to a virtual format, which is challenging. And many professors like myself have research labs. And so oh, yeah. research has been stopped, but we have things in our lab that need to be maintained. So we have a very critical smaller number of people that are going into the labs to make sure that the equipment that needs to stay running stays running. We have things that are like cryogenic cells Mm -hmm. and viruses that are frozen away that need to be maintained with things like liquid nitrogen that they, that keeps them frozen in in that way for long periods of time. So there, there are a lot of aspects to moving the entire university operations off, off campus right now. Nyla, what about for you? Um, I was teach- during this term, I was teaching a one online course, which was climate change and health. And the other was a hybrid course in which 
some of the sessions were face-to-face. -face. We had some site visits in environmental health class. So we switched them to online, which was um, um, uh, accepted by the students quite readily because of the risks involved. So it was a relatively easier for me, but some of my colleagues uh, who were teaching face-to-face -face classes, they had to really put together the online um, uh, modality for their students. And it was a little bit of a challenging time for us, but I, I think um, we got everything under control and the students have transitioned well to this uh, uh, mode of teaching and uh, we are hoping that uh, as the month of April um, closes we will be able to graduate our master's students and um, it will be a relatively easier time for everybody. Um, and um, one um, aspect of this evolving pandemic that I have incorporated in my climate change class is that some of the lessons that we have learned um, as we are uh, tackling this pandemic is that we need to be prepared for climate change eventualities as well. So preparedness is the key, the public health prevention efforts that we are now trying to incorporate in our day-to-day -day life, um, uh, staying at home, not shaking hands and restricting ourselves from going out or restraining ourselves to isolate ourselves or quarantine ourselves if we have symptoms from our family members. So those kind of preparations or public health behavioral changes that we are making right now, we need to incorporate those preparedness at a wider scale and, um, um, and at a policy level to tackle climate change as well. So that is something uh, which is of um, significance for my climate change students. It's very, very interesting. And mm -hmm. I, you know, we work remotely, but we do not have a bunch of students to teach, but we still have different <laughs> aspects as well in terms of limiting being in our weather center and, and how we're gonna cover severe weather and, and all of that. So we definitely have that on our mind. Um, mm -hmm. Let's maybe end on a positive note. What can people, we're going to go through it one more time because I don't think we have said enough. What can people do and what do you think we're going to learn from this that can maybe give uh, a little bit of comfort that in the future when this does, it's probably going to be a win, this does happen again, um, that, that you have faith that our educators and our government and policymakers that maybe we could, um, you know, get this, become more familiar with it and maybe have better response or continue to have good response something I guess that would be a positive that you would like to end on? I think everybody can help the cause by staying home and heeding all of the warnings that they are giving to do the social distancing and all of those recommendations with washing your hands and things like that, which have overall very good health benefits. So we can all flatten this curve. We're hearing that a lot and, and do our part that way. We, we will learn a lot from this. I think that We've learned some lessons about certain types of supplies that we need to have on hand or the ability to ramp up manufacturing very quickly on things like the masks, gloves, ventilators, the PPE, which mm -hmm. is the personal protective equipment. So I think that the lessons learned will help us to deal with these future epidemics and pandemics. Nyla, anything you wanna add? Um, uh, from climate change perspective, uh, we have seen that remote um, business activities, remote teaching is a possibility. Uh, so I think moving forward, uh, we will probably see a little bit of um, increase in uh, remote um, um, business activities as well as teaching modalities. And it's good for the environment and good for saving resources. Wonderful. Well, thank you ladies both so much for joining us. I mean, 
I'm not sure how long this went on, but it was amazing and just <laughs> full of knowledge. I, I know. I'm blown away. You answered a lot of questions right off the bat that I had that I didn't even know I had that you answered for me. <laughs> yeah, so you had your whole list of questions. I had a whole list and I just like blew through everything. <laughs> um, but thank you both so much uh, for joining us. And honestly, we may contact you again to come back on to talk maybe a little bit more about the lessons we have learned because we are all in this together. We can do this. We can follow directions. We can help our neighbor. And I, I have faith in, in our, um, not only community, but our country as well, Nicole. I agree. And uh, ending on a positive note, I can't remember who said this, but I was watching a video recently. Is that, uh, you remember when you were little and your mom or whoever was like, get outside, go do some stuff. And, and you, you know, all you want to do is just sit there and not go outside, but just thinking, staying home is saving lives. I mean, you're literally little effort, maximum you know, results. Yeah. So I mean, just, just try to enjoy it. And I'm thankful that we're moving into the spring and summer months. So if this was the middle of winter and everybody shut in and, you know, there'd be a lot more depression, we can get out, we can breathe the air, we can spend time with our families and really become closer. So positive. I've seen my husband and my daughter more than I have right? because of our jobs taking us away. So um, as Dr. Khalil said, you know, this is shown us a way that we can do our jobs, but in a different way and still be successful at it. Wonderful. All right. Thank you. And thank you everybody for um, joining us and listening or watching whatever you're doing. We appreciate it. Um, you can always download and listen to other podcasts that we've had on Apple play or Apple podcasts, Google play and Stitcher. And again, on our OTT streaming app for Roku, um, smart TV, uh, Amazon fire. We have uh, a streaming product that allows you to look at all of our past episodes as well. So thank you both ladies. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.